to our beautiful deep community, I want to assure you the deeper is going nowhere and the same incredible content will be released every week, but now through Arise. It is going to be less trauma heavy and more inspirational, uplifting, but it will still challenge and push you to grow. For all your deeper episodes, they are still available every fortnight. You can still get your deep hit with the deeper subscription. You know, I remember when I'd get called Blackie at school and I remember saying to my foster mother, my first foster mother, about getting called names and she used to say to me, God made me in the daytime, he made you in the night, he made you in a hurry and forgot to paint you white. Welcome to The Deep. I'm Zoe Marshall. In my early 20s, a lot of traumatic things happened. And ever since then, I have had this fascination with people and their stories. This is The Deep. Imagine growing up, feeling safe and loved by your family. And then one day, at age four, you and your brothers are snatched and taken away. Stolen. Forever. And placed with white people. Foreigners. Told that this was best for you that you would need to forget life as you knew it and to fit into this new world. It sounds like a movie, a horror story, and it is. But this is true, and Cleone is one of the children that is part of the stolen generation. Content warning, if you're suffering or triggered by the themes of this podcast, help services are listed in the show notes. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I work and live and recognise their continuing connection to land, water and community. I pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging. Cleone, you are Chloe's mum. Yes, I am. (laughs) Well, Barker's, as people know her by. We had Barker on last season and we were talking about you. And she shared something that really rocked me to my core. And that is that you are one of the stolen generation. Yes. Yeah. For those people that don't know or maybe are listening from overseas and don't understand our history here in Australia, could you summarise what that means? Yeah. Um, goodness, it would have happened probably 1800s, maybe earlier, oh, probably earlier, where the government um, was removing Aboriginal children from their families and placing them um, in care in institutions to become either domestic servants or farmhands. Um, later, the policy changed um, in '67 that um, allowed non-Aboriginal families to... Um, take Aboriginal children into care. And it was on the the grounds of assimilation to assimilate them into society in the hope that they would forget their Aboriginal heritage and their past and their culture and, um, you know, come into mainstream. So the policy was deemed to be um, nicer or kinder Mm. rather than just getting them to do slave labour. 
I was removed in 65 and um, the Protection Act, as I mentioned, was removed in 67, but both the acts were running parallel. So um, I, I was removed on the um, policy of integrating or assimilating into mainstream society. Yeah. How old were you? Um, I was four at the time, so I was born in 61, so I'm only 21. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know I'm bad at math. <laughs> That's good. I'm 21, okay? Okay. Yeah. And um, so I was removed in 65, 66. I was four years old at the time. Uh, and my three brothers, three other brothers were removed who were older than me except for my eldest brother, who was 12 at the time. Um, and, you know, we we believe he wasn't removed because my grandmother hit him at the time and also because he was working because a child could work at the age of 12. Mm. Um, so the my three brothers and myself were removed in 65. Was that all on the same day? All on the same day. Um, we were under the the Welfare Act, but the Protection Act. So there was two acts working in Wilcannia at the same time and Aboriginal people had to reach a certain standard. They had to be seen to be working, um, have a job, their children going to school and the welfare would check it that they were doing this. Um, and reading my files and even old um, IATSIS files, they talk highly of, of the Quail family, you know, that they're working and all this wasn't until we went down to Balranel, because um, Mum was from that way, and all the Aboriginal mob had come in and sit around a huge campfire, and uh, the old sergeant grabbed us because oh. we were around the campfire, um, and took us into care at the time. My three brothers and myself and my mum and dad were. My auntie told me that we we're apparently all locked up in the police station, and she went down and said, you can't lock children up. What what year was this? Um, that would have been 66. So we're all sitting around the big campfire, and, and um, the, the sergeant came along. Mum and Dad appeared in court the next day and um, lost custody of us. And um, my auntie um, said that Mum and Dad walked back from um, Balranel to I- Ivanhoe, that's where we lived, and, um, you know, that's probably about 400 k's away. So they, she said they just walked. So we were all shipped off to Sydney at the time. Um, I was sent to Bidura, which is the children's court now. But that used to be a home for girls. And the boys were sent to Royalston, which is a bit further down the road in Glebe, which is a training centre. And I always think if I'd known that there were so many blackfellas over in Redfern, I probably would have ran away. <laughs> but I was none the wiser at the time, so I behaved myself. Um, and I was terrified, absolutely terrified. Can we talk about just, I want to go back to your home life, the safe place for you. Mm. What do you remember of that? Um, I had four brothers who tormented and I think that's what brothers do, and they still torment me to this day. Um, Dad worked at the um, railway. He was a tapper on the railway on my birth certificate, so I know we lived in a railway cottage there. I know that most people worked, had a huge family. 
you know, and on the file it, it did say that the boys didn't go to school regularly. But I think, you know, when you look at mum and dad weren't allowed to go to school and then all of a sudden you're talking about, well, can you? And, you know, in some areas there just wasn't schools um, what What's the available. expectation? I know. And um, it's really insane because if, if you've denied people, you know, like my parents were denied a schooling, I remember my grandmother putting a cross on a little pension check years ago. You know, she used to get a check and she'd put a cross because she couldn't write. So you have an expectation, you know, that they're meant to send their kids to school. And I I don't know whether um, culturally they'd actually understand. And I know the boys did go sometimes, but, I mean, I was four years old, so I was removed and I wasn't even of school age. But you were... your family was a loving place. Oh, it there was. There was no um, reason for them to take you away. No. Apart from what they deemed was the best thing for you. Yeah. I mean, given, like I said, Dad, we're, we lived in a railway cottage. I think what happens is they often don't understand um, Aboriginal parenting practices, that there isn't one parent. Mm, it's a, it's there's, a, there's many parents. It's you know, the community, like, right? It is. It's the community. And it's like um, when we were actually removed, you know, the sergeant was saying, um, you know, their parents, um, you know, were drinking at the time, but we were actually being looked after our auntie. Like everyone to sit around the campfire yeah. so somebody be responsible for you. Of course. And um, so when you're putting on certain standards on people, and this was a huge gathering, like people had done it for ages, come in from all the, you know, the homelands and would gather around a big fire and just yarn and laugh up and, yeah, you connect. know, connect, that's right, and share stories and all the rest of it. So it's putting those standards and also I know that um, they don't understand the role of especially boys or Aboriginals because um, my eldest brother Kenny used to look after me and I think they they were quite shocked um, that, that my brothers were held responsible for me, mm. you know, but um, that's just how it is. Like I even raise my kids that they've got to look out for each other. It's not gender specific. Mm. You know, my older son, Shane, is just as responsible for Chloe Mm -hmm. as what his older sister is. You know, there's none of this gender, you know, the boys have to get up and wash dishes and cook and all the rest. One of my sons is a chef, by the way. So um, you don't have gendered roles. Yeah. And I also think that that was a problem, you know, because throughout our files, we did see that the boys often would look after their little sister. And, you know, that's, that's quite, to me, that's ridiculous. Because um, that, to me, is what brothers and sisters are meant to do anyway. So it's a complete lack of respect and understanding of Indigenous culture. Yeah. And thinking their way is the right way. Mm. And we're doing what's best for you. So we're going to tear you and your family apart. Yeah. And we're going to place you in a home that will benefit you by our standards so you can assimilate to our standard. That's right. And I think it's quite ironic, like you think, um, you know, women didn't get women's rights in Australia till 75, whereas Aboriginal women, we've always had women's business and men's business and, you know, often Jackie Huggins and, you know, women working in that field, you know, will often say that Aboriginal women waiting for the white women to come over and talk to them. Wow. 
And um, so you've got this whole cultural, you know, Aboriginal women don't understand that white women don't have a place in society. It's such a disconnect on it, so many yeah, levels. Yeah, and, um, you know, like I remember, you know, reading once where Aboriginal women said, you want equal rights? You know, and they thought that was quite unusual because in some cases Aboriginal women have more rights. You know, if they're law women, yeah. they're, they're higher ranking than, yeah. than men in their communities. So, And that's what Chloe was saying. It's such a matriarchal um, culture where the women are utmost respected. It's like Mother Earth to mm. mother. Mm. And the men know their place. And then you, you are forced into a white culture where... Women don't have the rights. Women are very passive and, and very, yeah, they don't have it's any so rights. It's so confusing, isn't it? it? Is. On so many levels of everything that you've witnessed as a child and then being taken away. And Can... and I used to sleep with my parents in the bed too, you know, like the boys, we all slept in a big double bunk. And, um, you know, this Aboriginal woman, when, you know, I talk about it in my story, Stolen Generation, and she said that's the way we kept our children safe. Mm you know, was to have them in the room. And she said, and then the white men bring in this house where the children are excluded and you can't keep an eye on them anymore. Um, I found that quite a shock when I was taken. I did mention it in, in the story is that um, I was then totally isolated, you know, after sleeping with mum and dad. So, and then all of a sudden placed in a cot and cot with bars. And then there was bars on the window in the home. And, you know, I was terrified totally terrified as a kid because nobody tells you they just tell you to behave on that day that you're taken both sides as a child and a mother I can't imagine oh I can't imagine it it's almost too cruel to be true I Mm. can't I can't it's too much I know they talk you know there's so much trauma because I mentioned how my mother and father became alcoholics, you know, and um, their marriage, they separated afterwards. Because how, how are you then a family? How do you then function after that if you've lost everything? You know, how do you... And I don't know, look, and I've always said if my kids were taken off me, I'd drink myself to oblivion too, especially back then because there was no getting your children back because... I did see on the file where dads, they've told dad to go out and get a job and he's raced out and got a job and then they said, oh, you've got to have another female in the house. So then he had asked Nana and she put a hand up and, you know, then they said, no, the children aren't going back. So I, I even feel for dad, like oh. he even had to pay maintenance. <laughs> he had to pay maintenance, maintenance for you for being taken. Yes, yes. Like, you know, I'm sitting here in a really privileged position and... I am I am deeply ashamed as an Australian. I think it is one of the just most it's it's horrific. And for your family to live through it but then be made to pay for it. I couldn't get over that they'd asked dad to pay maintenance. Like when I saw it on the file that he was to pay maintenance for us in care, I thought, wow, like what a kick in the head for him, and and it it does it, it breaks my heart that he did everything they asked, and then they, they've still put on the file. No, he's not going to get the kids back. Can we go back the day you were taken? Do you remember it? I don't. 
um, I remember um, not crying and the boys crying. And then I busted out crying. I, I wouldn't say I knew why I was crying, but I knew something was going on. Because um, I was four going on to five. And I remember um, this, you know, person saying, oh, how could anyone remember, you know, that back till four you think if you're traumatised enough, you remember, don't worry. You know, like if, a, you know, they say, I can't even remember what I had for lunch yesterday. I can't, but I'm not traumatised. But I'm sure if I was placed in a really traumatic situation, I can't say I knew we were being removed. I knew that strangers were taking us in a car and the boys started crying and I couldn't understand what was going on. I remember being placed in the home, in the cot, and I remember that isolation because... You know, of course you're going to remember it. Does anyone say, Cleone, this is what is happening. We've had to do this for this reason. You're now staying at this place for this long. I'll give you a cuddle. Here is some... There's no... No, there's no... um, Back then you were just expected to, um, you know, because I always talk about how I wet the bed. That night, because I was so traumatised, and yeah. I remember being told to get up, make the bed, and then they went over and put me in the cot, you know. So you you were just expected to carry on like nothing in your life had changed, you know, especially when you're in, in homes, um, you're expected to, even in foster care, like I would say even in foster care, foster parents had this, I think a lot of parent, foster parents really have to question why they're taking on kids because most of the kids they're going to take on are really traumatised kids. And I think people believe that they're saving a child and therefore think the child should be... Grateful. Grateful. Or shut up or <laughs> yeah, whatever that's right. it is. And if the child mucks up... And it doesn't work like that. No, it doesn't. I mean, you're dealing with really traumatised kids and even... You know, in situations they've shown where their parents are really around. Kids still have an attachment to their, their parents, you know, their family. That's, And I think, you know, a lot of people, for some unknown reason, when they foster children, and we've seen reports in the media and that, that these kids are going to be really well behaved and be forever grateful, and that's just not the reality of it. You know, I know that I pretty much went to an alien... Um, situation like I didn't know um, about homes, bars, cots, um, non-Aboriginal people because I grew up in Wilcannia. It's a very, very largely populated Aboriginal community and even going down to Balranal it was all... So even non-Aboriginal people were quite alien. And going into Glebe, you're in the heart of Sydney. Mm. And coming from the bush, you know, you have no idea what's going on. There's no normality there whatsoever. Like you get even the the fact that they take your belongings from you, um, you know, you, they take your clothes off you, they put you in the standard green tracksuits um, or some were yellow, depends which house you were put into. Like little prisoners? Yes, yeah. And yeah. were you so you you get like whichever house you're in, you get a tracksuit. So some wear like red tracksuit, some wear green, some wear yeah, yeah. Because if you ran away, they needed to identify that you're a child from the home. So, and are there other children with you? 
there are other children with me, yes. Are you guys, do you band together? Do you try and seek comfort in each other? Or is it you're just trying to survive on your own? I would say some, but I would say some are really hurting that they lash out. You know, there there were lots of fights and... But you do find, um, you know, a group of kids who are like-minded, and I think that's just life. Mm. You know, it happens in life. You know, you find someone who's at the same level of trauma as you. And But, um, yeah, you had kids who wanted to start fights and hated everybody. And I don't blame those kids. No. Like, I don't, um, you know, I understand why they are, you know. And at what age are you rehomed with this family? I went to my first foster family when I was four till eight years old. My foster mother was being, um, you know, domestic violence. She was getting abused each week. And then I was sexually abused as a child from my foster father. My first foster... I wasn't never sexually abused at home. And and this whole notion, like I would be called a liar, like when I told the priest, because it's the only person I could think of to tell at the time, he told me to say ten Hail Marys. And, um, you know, I was deemed the, you know, the, I wasn't a victim, you know. And I think a lot of women were looked at like that, that somehow women brought, like girls, and that brought it on themselves, you know. You know, even there I formed an attachment because you want to belong as a child. Yeah. And um, when they gave me back to the homes... So why? What happened? Um, their marriage broke down because he was abusing his all his children and he was an alcoholic and... Wow. You know, and the only standard that you had to have to be a foster family is to be a so-called good Christian as long as you went to church every Sunday, which is what they did. So I was there for four years. Um, my foster mother used to cane me a lot with the feather duster um, because I I wasn't, um, you know, naturally I'd be sexually abused so I'd lash out and um, I'd get caned a lot. Now, I wouldn't necessarily know what it was for and, um, yeah, so there... There was no one asking, like I remember when they questioned why I was getting worse with my behaviour, um, you know, it was automatic, it was in the file that they blamed mum and dad and said heaven knows what kind of household she came from. So wow. all the blame went back to mum and dad, to my behaviour. That just makes my blood boil. Do you at this point, going back to the home, do you get to talk to your birth parents? Do you get to talk to your brothers? Do you get any contact? I met met my brother once. Um, He was a lot older than me and he asked, because the docs used to take us to, um, you know, a a place where uh, one of their offices where we could talk to each other and meet each other and it was all supervised and all the rest of it. And my foster mother... um, wrote a letter off to Doc saying that she didn't want that to continue because the boys might go back and tell my parents where I am. So I I wasn't allowed to go and see my brothers anymore after that. So are you rehomed a few more times? Or? I was then sent to um, back to Bajira because Bajira was a holding centre. So they'd send you back to Bajira until they worked out where they were going to send you then. And then I was um, sent on to Mittagong Girls' Home 
and um, I was there for about four years at Mittagong. And um, I actually liked the homes. And I know it sounds ridiculous, but I didn't have to call anyone mum or dad. Um, I didn't have to fit into a non-Aboriginal family that I felt very different because, you know, I remember when I'd get called Blackie at school and nigger and that, and I remember saying to my foster mother, my first foster mother, about getting called names, and she used to say to me, God made me in the daytime, he made you in the night, he made you in a hurry and forgot to paint you white. Oh, my God. That woman said that to you? Yeah. So, and I'm not the, ad like, I get amazed when I talk to other Aboriginal kids and they said, yeah, that was said, like, that seems to oh, be that's a like standard, a saying. a saying back then in the 60s for, you know, Aboriginal kids who were removed. So I was quite shocked that, you know, other Aboriginal kids came forward and said to me, oh, yeah, I had that said to me too. So um, that is no comprehension of the impact of racism and violence on children. None whatsoever. So um, you're left feeling like even God's left you, yeah. You because know, as a child you believe you're in learning God. that, <laughs> you know. So you think God's just left you and taken off you. He couldn't be bothered with you, you know. He couldn't be bothered coming back down to paint you. So you even feel like he's even abandoned you, abandoned you, and you're not worth it. So it's um, quite horrendous. The the impact of racism even from from that that's supposed to comfort you, you know. But because um, I did, I grew up thinking that there was something wrong with with me and my family, you know, um, because I couldn't understand why we'd be taken otherwise and why they wouldn't send me back home and... And even at one stage, I normalised sexual abuse as a child because my father never did it, yet this non-Aboriginal man did it, and yet was okay. So as a kid, you just try to make sense of it all, but you can't. I'm so sorry. Thank you. Thank you. It is um, just incredible. It's disturbing. And it's horrible the number of kids that it was done to. And even when John Howard was saying, you know, that um, it was for their, their best interest. And and things like that, you just think, you you never been through that. You wouldn't even know what you're talking about. Like, how was this for my best interest? I then went to another foster family. And um, my foster father in that family was lovely. He'd never hit or anything, you know, he's a beautiful man. And um but my foster mother was quite violent in that. Um, you know, did a lot of psychological abuse and things, you know, and like when my mother died, I was seventeen when my mum passed away. And she walked in the room and said, Oh, your mum's dead. Don't worry, you got me. And then when I started crying, she said, What are you crying for? And, you know, pretty much told me to stop crying. And um, I didn't know Docs said to her that I could have went to my mother's funeral and she told Docs that I didn't want to go to my mum's funeral. Because they used to only talk to the uh, the foster parents. They wouldn't talk to the kids at the time. 
And, you know, even to have that where you haven't even gone to your own mother's funeral is... And you're not even told. No, I wasn't told, but even later on you just think, wow, I've never been to my mother's funeral. You know, you go back later when you're an adult and you just stand there and say sorry to your mother. So um, I went down to Yaks, which they were called back then, Youth and Community Services, and I said to them, I can't live here anymore, <laughs> you know. And um, I went in there at nine in the morning and I didn't get out of there till four in the afternoon because, you know, it was about, was I making mountains out of molehills? I said, I can't be here anymore, you know, I want to I wanna go home. You know, after a while they finally listened to me because I pretty much said, I'm just going to sit in your office here. I'm not moving. I'm not going back there. You know, and um, so they got me a placement at the Good Samaritan Hostel then in Arncliffe, and I loved it there. <laughs> I'm probably one of the only people who love being. And, and I took, like, Sister Regina, who was our house parent, and there was probably eight kids that she looked after and we were all teenagers. But Sister Regina was um, was lovely. She certainly wasn't my, or I don't think she was anybody's stereotype of a nun. She was very much down to earth and, you know, if you did something naughty, you got punished for it. But, you know, it was pretty much equivalent. Like if I, she say, go, make sure you're home by 12 and you're not, then you're grounded. So... It was um, fair. At it least. was fair, and you understood what was coming at you. <laughs> you know, yeah. you knew what the rules were, and you know, you knew, you know, it was your choice then, and you knew the consequences of your behaviour. Um, and she let me go home. I said to her when I was seventeen, you know, I want to go home, and um, she organised for my auntie to come and pick me up, and I went home. But I was 17, so I wasn't released from wardship. I was still, you know, don't get released till you're 18 years old. So, um, you know, I met my father, my brother, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. How was that? Beautiful. (laughs) I just cuddled him, so I don't... You know, I wish I had asked him a lot of questions, but, you know, I just didn't want to let him go. And because I was the only girl, like, I was his, you know, I was his little girl. So, you know, it was just, it was lovely. You know, and the boys and Nana and, you know, like Dad was out on dead and sand hills and we're sitting around a campfire again <laughs> and we just sit around and have yarns and talk silly and and I was really really happy you know I thought and they're my happiest memories you know and I still have a campfire at my little house and <laughs> We all sit when family come up and we all sit around it and just yarn and tell stories and tell ghost stories and scare the crap out of each other and then see who's going to go home first. And 
So um, that was really emotional for me when I met my father and even like I was loved, you know, like dad couldn't, you know, all my heart, I didn't realise how massive my family was. (laughs) Now, I remember even on Facebook, I said, how many on dad's side cousin? He said, oh, about a thousand cousins. (laughs) I said, my other cousin, I said, how many on mum's side? He said, a shitload cousin. I said, that's great. How much is a shitload? (laughs) And he said, oh, probably about a thousand cousins. So on, you know, I've got this massive family of 2,000 people and all those years I felt isolated and alone and then to go home, like I don't even know half my cousins' names. You know, even to this day I keep meeting more cousins, you know, and, um, you know, I I am, I'm still meeting more family and and it's going to be a journey and, you know, it's it's just unbelievable that you have such this huge, massive family and yet you felt so isolated like you're the only one. You know, but... um, This whole community that could have raised you together. Yeah, and they just loved, you know. That's one thing, you know, you just get big, beautiful cuddles and kisses. And my nana, you know, she um, spoke language with a sister in the bedroom but wouldn't do it out in, you know, the public arena because of her growing up not to speak language. You know, and, um, you know, they'd come out with... They still do come out with Aboriginal words, you know. And, um, you know, in Wilcannia, they're, they're teaching Aboriginal kids their language in the schools and that, which is great. So, they, you know, it was more hidden when I was growing up in fear that kids would be removed, mm. you know, whereas now it's, it's great to see this whole, you know, that it wasn't lost, that there's still speakers there because my nana was a speaker, but she just didn't do it in public and... You know, I'm just glad that they went out and recorded those speakers before they were lost, you mm. know. So, um, mm. I mean, it's something people take, for, you know, for advantage that if you come from a bilingual family that you're going to know both languages and, and you're blessed if you do, you know. But if it's taken, you know, it's... And I often think of communities where the language is totally lost, you know, and they can't. Like, if, if you've been out to Wilcannia, we've got a real Wilcannia draw, like, <laughs> the accent. Sounding accent. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So even when I go home, I, I start doing <laughs> But um, even the accent, and it's great that, you know, our mob have kept that. Uh, and maybe because we're in Wilcannia, you know, that we did become so isolated at some stage, you know. Mm. it's It has its for and against, you know. I want to go to the intergenerational trauma because a lot of people listening are not First Nations people Mm. and they have the perspective of what the media or of what our community and culture has given them. Mm. Mm. And even with things like Australia Day, Mm. (laughs) um, lots of people, I think, don't understand why there is upset. They don't know that things are linked all the way back to the stories that you've been telling today. Even even people who go, oh, it happened so long ago, get over it. I'm walking around still, you know. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) um, I want to swear, but I won't. It's like, excuse me. Yeah. Just because you're over the conversation doesn't mean my trauma. That's right. Yep. 
and all and of that And you just think, would you tell a sexual assault victim to get over it? Like, if a, if a woman had been sexually abused, would you sit there and if she was telling, would you go get over it? Like, why do you think it's appropriate to tell Aboriginal people to get over, you know, grief and trauma? And that's what really annoys me when you hear people say, oh, but that happened so long ago, can't you just get over it? No, you can't. Or they say, and it's not. Still... I didn't do it. They yeah, say, that's I right. didn't personally do it. That happened before me. And For... I think, yeah, I know you didn't personally do it, but how did you react? And also how you vote. Yeah. How you turn up for people, how the conversations that you have, the it's so system um systemic yeah. that you are responsible. Every single person listening to this is responsible. Yeah. And I'm not saying directly for Cleone's trauma, but you are responsible for the way in which healing happens and that we start to develop as a country. I, mean, I think it's it's quite sad. Like since Rudd did the apology and we waited ten years for and can sorry. We talk, can we just talk about the fucking <laughs> wait on that apology? What is the problem? What is the problem that a prime minister can't take responsibility and say sorry? Why did that take so long? I I think because um number one, he didn't want to admit um, number two, like he brought in my personal regret. He's the one who personalised it. You know, the, um, it was Labor who started it. So Labor did the the, the um, inquiry into the removal of Aboriginal children. Yes. Put up all these recommendations. Then you had a change of election. So you had Howard. Yes. Doing his personal regret, and then people saying, "We don't want to hear your personal no, regret. We don't. It's got not about you, mate." <laughs> and what Aboriginal people were asking for is um, a recommendation that was brought down from the UN about reparations to the stolen generation because we weren't the only people who were stolen. Also, the um, the Native American kids who were sent to reform school, I believe Maori kids suffered too, um, apartheid in South Africa. They're the ones who started it when they had the changeover of government. What we had in Australia after that was was reconciliation. We we skipped the truth. Mm. We just went straight over to reconciliation. And and now, like you hear Aboriginal people talking about the truth now, you know, um, with the Uluru statement, um, truth telling, and you'll see that because you do have to start from telling the truth. You know, you you have to be honest. Like people will say, history doesn't impact upon you. Sorry, the things, why things are like they are today is because of history, you know, and why should you just acknowledge one side of history like Captain Cook and not acknowledge the other side of history mm. too? Like to think that you just plonked onto the planet yeah. without any prior, you know, history is just really silly because that's what you'll have people will say, get over it, that happened so long ago. No, it didn't. What I... My interpretation, and I don't know much, so I'd love you to inform me, is no one wants to take full responsibility because the reparation of that and the cost of that is too much. They just want to be like, oh, here's the line in the sand. Let's mm. start from now. I'm sorry, and let's start from today. Yeah, let's get over it. And, now, yeah. I believe, like you, it's not too hard. No, it's not. It's a human right. 
if if you're willing to compensate people for a car accident because you realise you know an injustice was done, if you're willing to compensate people for um, crime, victims of crime, if you're willing to compensate the because non-Aboriginal children who were brought out here from England and work, they were compensated back in the seventies. You can't just compensate one group of people and not the other, and not the other. So this is where it becomes racist? It does become very racist because I was talking to a friend of mine and I never knew he got compensated and I never knew it was back in the 70s he got compensated. This is your English friend? Yep, he was brought out here um, and he was compensated back in the 70s. you know, and I, I just thought, wow, if we were compensated back in the 70s then we could have brought a house and... Let's talk about that then. Hmm. To all the people that feel moved by this conversation, that feel like, okay, I am not racist and, yes, I am benefiting of the system. I want to do better. What do you say to them? I have heaps of non-Aboriginal friends who, um, you know, organisations I've worked in who, um, you know, have offered their their prono pro bono advice and assistance, um, giving up their time, challenging racism when they see it. I think it's the most powerful thing they can do because mm-hmm. a lot of people aren't going to be racist towards me. It's in a group of friends, yeah, at the pub, down the park, at your mother's group that say something, yeah, challenge that. In the moment, and I think this is so um, this is so important. Is it's going to be uncomfortable? Mm. You may be outed, mm. and and that seems to be acceptable within this society. Where you know, if you look at how it's going now, it's, it's worse to call it out than it is to be a racist. Can I ask you then? Because we've got there are going to be other things like this that turn up. Aussie customs, and I mean Aussie as in white Australia customs like Australia Day and other things like that, are there any others that feel disrespectful? Statues, naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, I think um, patriotic, you know, being patriotic, I think that like people just um, really have to let go of that, you know, that patriotism is just shocking, you know, flying under a flag and that. Because Aboriginal people, we have a flag, but it's not always about the flag. You know, we're going through a flag cross at the moment. But, um, you know, it's about our connection to people. It's about our connection to the culture. like. And, you know, we've often thought if you take the flag, you won't take away Aboriginal people anyway. You know, like it's, it's ridiculous having it hung up on this flag and... And if you look at the history of Australia, we might be a multicultural society, but are we um, really accepting of other people? No, we're not. And that's really interesting. I've got shivers from that. Can I ask you, through all of that immense trauma, what helped you heal? My kids. Yeah. I mean, being removed, I just wanted a family, so... I could make my own little family <laughs> when I was old enough. 
I wasn't very good at relationships because I had very bad role models growing up. And, um, you know, I had to get to a point where I said, no, I'm not going to do the the relationship thing anymore. I, I don't have the tools. And that was really hard to come to terms with. Um, but I love being a mother, you know. And I, I um, that my children were my sanity, were my, um, you know, were my, my saving grace, really, you know. And, have you reconnected with your brothers and all of them? All of them. And like I said, my family just keep growing. I think I've met them all and then somebody else pops up. That's the beauty of social media. And even, um, you know, this organisation called Generation X who does research, ide- Indigenous X, sorry, identify that Aboriginal people use social media for different reasons. A lot of it is about reconnecting. Yeah. Connecting you know, keeping in touch with social issues and political issues. And and you found your family again. I, I found, yeah, I have. I mean, I, I found them when I went down home and met Dad in the 70s, some of them, mm-hmm. and throughout my working career living in Redfern. I mean, it's amazing how many, <laughs> how many are everywhere. Family, and everywhere. And do you have a lot of family there that you didn't realise were family too? I don't even know people. You know, I, even to this day, people will have to say, I'm your, your cousin. <laughs> or, you know, or if I go somewhere and, you know, they'll go, that's your cousin, like that. And so, I mean, that's the beauty is that um, I, I don't think anybody really understands our big Aboriginal family. They're massive. So when you hear policy and government say, oh, we can't find kinship carers, that just blows my mind. You're like, like they're everywhere. They're everywhere and everywhere. And one of my aunties actually did ask. Could she have us? And she was a teacher and owned her own home and the government wouldn't let her, you know. So it it was racist, the policy, end of story. Can I ask you, has it changed how you parent? I've gone back to, I parent Aboriginal way, you know, like I actually believe, you know, that um, loving a child and cuddling them every day and... Sleeping all in the same bed. Oh, look! If the grannies want to come and dive in bed with me, you know that's just that just happens. Did your kids have were my you in kids the bed? Would dive in bed with me? You know, like there wasn't. I mean, I they did have rooms each, you know, but if they wanted to come and dive in bed, they could come. Yeah. You know, and that's to me how it should be. If they're scared that night and they want to dive in bed, dive in bed with me. You know, so um, I think you know. As I said, kids are people too. They've got emotions, you know, this whole thing, a kid should be seen, not heard, you know. And um, the yeah. debates you see going on about, you know, I should be able to hit your kids. I don't hit my kids, mm. you know. I don't believe in hitting, I think, because growing up as a kid, I I just resented the person and I couldn't stand them if they hit me. They say hitting a child is for the parent, not for the child. And I believe that, you know, it it's... If if your boss punched you in the face because you did something wrong, what would you do? So why do you think doing that to a child mm. would make it any different? You know, so all I could say is when, when I was removed, I hung on to every bit of hurt and every bit of pain, um, not to continue hurting myself, but so I could learn from it. Mm. Can I ask yeah. you then our final question? Yep. Who are you? When no one's watching, I'm a grandmother. Um, 
mother. Jewelry, jewelry maker. Love making Aboriginal jewelry. Love indigenising everything. Um, sit around in my slippies for six months. Um, I like to sit and think and take note, and I have political opinions about things, and um, I learn, unlearn. Mm-hmm. You know. I don't want to say I'm a particular thing, you know, like I worked in criminology and the law for years and then making jewellery now. I don't want people to define who I am, you know. I know growing up the on my file it said I was borderline retarded and, um, you know, stereotyping or putting ourselves in a certain category is really dangerous. Mm. You know, people, I, I believe the mind's an amazing thing and and you can change the path you want to walk if you can, you know. And even though I did have trauma, you know, to acknowledge your trauma, it's okay, you know. Mm. Um, and I think that's how, not think, it's how you empower yourself. Yeah. Don't let anyone belittle you, you know. Thank you. Thank you. From the no. bottom of my heart <laughs> for sharing everything you have with us today. Thank, Thank you, you, Zoe. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of The Deep. If it's left you with any burning questions for me or our guests, please hit us up by direct message on Instagram at What's The Deep. Hi, everybody. It is Zoe here. Change is coming to The Deep. I want to welcome you to Arise. It's uplifting, it's quirky, it's curious. It's all about the mindset and self-discovery to be more helpful and of service. During 16 of the Deep, you will hear some of these episodes and I'd love to hear what you think of them over on our Instagram at What's the Deep.